0: Hello, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I'm going to read a patron email. If you want your emails to get preferential treatment, you have to become a patron at patreon.com. Patron Natasha wrote in and said, Hi, Kirk, Umberto, and Paulette, and other great people. I'm a proud patron of the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I have a request for an episode topic. I would love if you all could do an entire episode or part of an episode on the topic of identity development in adolescence. As a young therapist, I see a lot of adolescent individuals and their families, as my degree is in marriage and family therapy, exclamation point. Identity development is such a major issue for these clients. I think it's because they are still living at home and engaged in the task of forging their identities on a daily basis, and this developmental task can often result in conflict with parents, guardians, authority figures, and institutions. And from a family system's perspective, this disrupts the homeostasis rather significantly, therefore resulting in pushback from parents. And most importantly, they end up in my office with problematic behavior. Uh, That's in quotes, problematic behavior. Finally, thanks for all that you do. I absolutely love the podcast, and I'm such a fan. I was so delighted when Kirk announced my name as an official patron in the Alpha Male episode. I appreciate all the different perspectives shared by all regular and recurring hosts and guests. You all have such wonderful things to share. I hope more listeners decide to pledge money to keep things going. You deserve it. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, patron Natasha. Okay. Well, let's provide some context because if you forgot if you're no longer a teenager, let me remind you how terrible it is to be a teenager the massive insecurity that ensues how many things you that are that are unknown to you how many things are that are unknown to you you don't know if you're going to have what it takes in the world you know you don't know if anyone is going to like you you know either as a friend or romantically and romantically is maybe the key it's like you just don't know like is anyone going to like me you don't know if you're going to make it in society and meanwhile, everyone is yelling at you all the time. No one respects you. Often, everyone thinks that you're, that you're, you're not, quote-unquote, living up to your potential, right? And during all of this, you feel an internal pressure and an external pressure to figure out who you are. Are you going to be a smarty pants? Are you going to be a chill dude? Are you going to be a preppy kid or a hip hop kid or a heavy metal kid or a computer nerd or a burnout or a dropout or a goody goody or whatever? It's all very confusing and overwhelming if you can remember that. And to compound that, if you have particular issues like, you know, traumas that occur or family issues that occur, it, you know, makes it even worse. But even for the best of uh, childhoods, teenage life can be a challenge for sure. In my career as a family therapist over the past 20 years, I've talked with thousands of teens, I'm guessing, and no matter what the issue, identity development within the family system is always part of the presenting problems and the treatment. So, in today's episode, I'm going to talk about identity development for teenagers. I'm going to talk about what terms are used in the literature, in the scientific literature, I'm going to talk about what is the self exactly. When we say identity development, what do, we, what do we mean by that exactly? And it's very complicated, let me tell you. I'm going to identify some research on the topic of teen identity. I'm going to talk about some challenges to teen identity development, and that's pretty complicated. And I'm going to uh, talk about some ways kids find identity in their life. How do they search and find their identity? And then I'm going to close with some suggestions for therapists on how to help teens and families regarding development of identity for teenagers, because like I said, it's it's involved probably in all families with teenagers. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast so if you're listening to this and you're not yet a patron come on people if you're not yet a patron of the podcast this episode will end very soon and the content will be stripped from you you will not be able to get <laughs> you won't be able to get it I, i'm sorry that's mean If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. If you haven't yet become a patron, do so now because we would love to have you in our fold. Be one of us. One of us. One of us. Patrons get access to all the premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page. When you become a patron, we'll let you know how to access the premium feed on your phone or on your browser or wherever. And remember that 20% of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including the Trevor Project. Okay, thanks for joining me in the patron zone. We love you so much. When I think about teen identity, I think about this one story from my childhood. I was listening to Pat Benatar think Hit Me With Your Best Shot, if I remember correctly. That song had just come out. And I was hanging with my, with my best friend, Tommy, who lived next door. Or Tom. Did you go by Tommy? Yeah, he probably went by Tommy. Anyway, uh, we were listening to the Pat Benatar song. And I said, oh, I love the ending of this song. Because it's sort, of a, it's sort of, a, of a distinctive ending to the song. And me and Tom would just listen to music in the dark sometimes just to, like, get into the music fully. We, I remember when Back in Black came out, we just laid in the dark in his room and just listened to Back in Black, you know, at super loud volumes. But anyway, uh, and that's Back in Black ACDC, by the way, 1980-ish. Anyway. So the Pat Benatar song, it ends, and I'm like, oh, I love the ending of that song. And Tom immediately said, oh, I hate that. And then I immediately and then I immediately said, yeah, me too. I hate it too. <laughs> and I remember even then at the time thinking, Kirk, you're being pathetic. That's that's just terrible that you can't just stand up for yourself, that you can't say something, that you like something and have someone say they hate it and just say, oh, okay, well, I guess I like it and you hate it. Well, that is to demonstrate the lack of a development of an identity and the uh, lack of self at the, in the moment, lack of differentiation. We all go through it, and it's, it's a journey. And so like that journey, let's go on the journey of development and how, and how it gets developed, <laughs> development of identity. Um, okay, terms used in the literature – well, as I said earlier, identity development is used. That's a term. Sometimes they'll refer to development of the self or self-concept. Some people will just use the word personality, but I think that's more of a broader term than identity. And I won't even get into defining personality because that gets pretty complicated. Other terms, self-portraits or, or self-descriptions or self-representations as typical to psychology literature, they use lots of different terms just to make it ultra-confusing for us. Okay, so what is the self? What is identity? What is self-concept? What is self-representation? What, what are we talking about when we use those terms? Well, it's a very complicated question, and if you are familiar with the literature on it, you know that this goes back thousands, hundreds, if not thousands, of years. What is the self? What What is what what makes us who we are? How do we know I am me and I'm not you? And how do you, we differentiate from each other? What's Are we different? Are we a self? What is, what is consciousness? All that kind of stuff. It's very complicated. But uh, just to give you a brief um, sort of mini synopsis of various different angles to this. You could say that the self is constructed by our autobiographical narratives. So in other words, as we live life, as we grow up, we tell ourselves certain stories about us in the world and what defines us. And each experience we have, we observe through our biased internal lens and tell ourselves a story about who we are. And then as time goes on, we construct this version of the self based on all of those autobiographical stories. So that's one way of saying self. And I like like that one probably the best is my guess. The other one I like the best equally as much is it forms out of our social environment. Some people who are very social construction-minded will point out that our the self is not contained within individuals that selves are and identities are formed in a society in a culture in a social context and when you we take away that social context or we change the social context we change the identity and that is uh, quite apparent in the research and in human experience so, the third thing you could say is that it 's formed out of attachments that the self identity is is formed by the quality and the nature of early attachments, which I also agree with. but I could subsume that under the autobiographical narrative issue. You could also say within psychodynamic language. That the self is constructed through internalizations and identifications, early experiences. But I would subsume that under the topic of personality, not necessarily the topic of self. But anyway, some people would say that the self-identity is a soul given by God. That we are all granted God or, an, or some other supernatural thing. We are granted an identity. Some would say that we're granted part of our identity from a past life, and some might say, even say, that our identity is formed from an astrological sign or event or something. So, and there are many more, but, but again, just to highlight the two that I adhere to in my own worldview is the self is constructed by our autobiographical narratives, and it forms within our social context. Okay, so when we start talking about teen identity, it's important to know that it is very different depending on the teen that we're talking about. So 13, the identity developmental tasks typical to 13-year-olds, are very different than the developmental tasks uh, common to 16-year-olds or 19-year-olds and for families with 13-year-olds it's very different for families with 16-year-olds which is very different for families of 19-year-olds so we can't lump all of teens into one group is the important thing also it should be noted that some argue that the concept of the self has morphed over time and across cultures with today's concept of the self being much more individualistic and somewhat entitled than in other times and other places there are very compelling arguments pointing to to that that the the idea of the self 500 years ago in europe was much less individualistic much uh, or much yeah much less individualistic and much more wrapped up in your society and what god has given you and what your purpose is in life if you were born the son of a farmer then your self-identity was that of a farmer because God had given you that fate in life. And I'm saying it simplistically, but uh, that, that in a nutshell is what a lot of intelligent historians slash psychologists slash philosophers say. Whereas today we socialize kids in a very different way to tell them that they could be anything. And so In some ways, today's identity development is much more complicated than it was even just 50 years ago uh, in the United States. And, And around the world currently, there are still cultures that are similar to the way it was in the West 500 years ago or even 50 years ago. So what do we mean by searching for an identity? Well, maybe it would help to say what it is like for a teenager to not have an identity. If they're searching for an identity and they don't have an identity, then what are the qualities of not having an identity? Well, just briefly, because I could go on and on about this, but just briefly, in a nutshell, if you're familiar with the term undifferentiated or fused, then those are terms that you can use to apply to people who, are, who don't have an identity developed they're, they're not mature yet. They can't say what they want. Uh, they have low self-esteem. They might not have a good moral compass. They might not know how to guide their behavior. They might not know how to make uh, consistent, healthy decisions for themselves. They might be uncertain about how to act. And they might be a chameleon, depending on the situation. And some people are healthy chameleons, but some people are chameleons to the point where they're so anxious socially that they will and, – and they're so – and they have yet to develop a self that they will act like different people depending on what they think the social context wants them to act like. So those are things about not having it. Mainly it's like unable to know who you are and what you want and unable to answer questions like who are you and what makes you special. Now, it's debatable whether or not these questions are actually uh, healthy in terms of, um, you know, specialness, because some would say that people shouldn't necessarily feel that that special. But again, I won't go into too much detail there. Also, many will say that, and it's compelling to me, that there are multiple selves, that we don't just have one self, that we don't have one identity. We might have several identities across different contexts. For instance, if you're an adult, you might have an identity at work. Maybe you're the super organized person and the quiet person. You might have an identity in your family. You might be the clown and the comic relief and the nice person. With your romantic partner, you might have a different identity. You might be the one who always nurtures with your friends, you might even have yet another identity. You might be the one who organizes things and the one who listens well. Uh, you might have a, yet another identity when you're alone, when you're by yourself. When you experience the self, you might exhibit yet another identity of who you are, what makes you tick. You might have another identity on the inter- Internet when you're playing video games or you're in chat rooms or, you know, in public arenas, on the, on Facebook, you might have a different identity. So the argument is is very compelling to me and has been made for many, many years that none of us have just one identity and that we develop multiple identities. Some might say we we develop one identity that manifests itself differently across cultures, but it's kind of just semantics to me at that point. Also, it should be noted that there might be a difference between what we call self-identity and social identity. So we might have one identity that we identify for ourselves, and we might have another identity that society or people around us define for us. So the self-identity is how we define ourselves, and the social identity is constructed by others outside of us. Now, our self-identity and our social identity might be similar, but, but they actually might be quite different as well. For instance, in high school, for me, when I was, you know, I went to a large high school, so there are a lot of people at my high school that didn't know me very well at all. And so those people who, who knew of me but didn't know me at all thought of me as just a football jock. They just thought of me as, oh, yeah, Kirk, the football player. But I thought of myself as something much different than that. I played football, but I considered myself to be like an – like an alt kid or, you know, a nerd you know, or a, I don't know, just not a football player. <laughs> I mean, I liked playing football, but I didn't consider that to be my sole identity for sure. So that would be my, there's a social self and then there was my own self-identity. And perhaps, you know, as another uh, general example that, that perhaps is more relevant is when you're treating families with teenagers, the teen might have a developing self for themselves, and they might also have a self that's developing in the family in terms of how they see that kid. So it's just important to take note of that. Also, there are very different dimensions to identity, right? What, what is your gender identity? What is your LGBTQ identity? What is, do you have a, an identity regarding disability or as a parent or as a therapist? How do you see yourself in the political world? Are you a Democrat? Are you independent? Are you Republican? How do you identify eth- eth- you know, ethnically? How do you identify uh, in terms of class? These are all different dimensions to identity that also use the term identity that we should know. Also, we should remember that there are philosophies and religions, such as Buddhism, that—and I don't know that much about it, so correct me if I'm wrong—but there is a significant part of Buddhism that tries to get rid of your identity. They, they strive to rid themselves of their own identity as a way of, of releasing themselves from the shackles of, of their own identity. And when they lose the self, when they lose their identity— through contemplation and meditation other practices. They are uh, freed from the suffering of having to be attached to something that is ephemeral, something that is temporary, and something that isn't necessarily even real. So, uh, again, I might be talking out of my ass, but that's what I understand. Also, it's important to note that when we talk about identity development, we're usually only talking about teenagers— But really, from birth to death, we are constantly working on our identity development. I mean, look around. What what sort of adults drive fancy cars? That has to do with one's identity. Or even just even the sort of car or the color of the car you buy has a lot to do with how you see yourself. A lot of Asian Americans like myself in Seattle drive Asian cars. Why is that? is it necessarily because asian cars are better no it's because it ha- we we buy asian cars because it's a part of our identity it's it's strange for an asian asian <laughs> like myself to buy a ford for instance or a chevy truck or something we buy hondas and toyotas and other kinds of asian cars to be more specific as a japanese person and my japanese brothers and sisters we we drive a lot of Japanese cars because there are other Asian cars, right? Um, And look at car commercials. It's 100% about identity. When you have a car commercial, the thing about, let me just go on a little jag about car marketing. The thing about car marketing is that at this point in our technology, this is just my opinion, is that cars are generally exactly the same. There is almost no difference between different brands and different cars. Now, I know some people say, oh, my God, well, you got to drive a blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay. And I, I have driven a blah, blah, blah. And yeah, in the beginning, it's sort of fun. It's like, whoa, this, this has some pickup to it. But in the end, you're just driving to work or to the 7-Eleven. You're not on the open road, you know, getting a, in a getaway car trying to get away from the cops and, you're not in a truck uh, going up the side of a mountain. You're you're driving your kids to school, and you're, you're you're running an errand to the Walgreens to pick up some prescription pills, or you're driving to work through traffic at you know five miles per hour across the bridge. You're you're not doing anything other than just rolling four wheels down a road, and I'm pretty sure that car manufacturers know this, and so. The only way they can possibly sell you their car is to define the drivers of that car very specifically, and it doesn't get any worse than this. When than the Lincoln commercial, I think it's Lincoln, the one with Matthew McConaughey in it and other uh, people like that. the The commercials I've seen, and I haven't studied them. Uh, So maybe I'm wrong about this. But my impression is, is those commercials, all they do is just show McConaughey driving around with a particular look on his face saying particular things. I think they're trying to capitalize after the True Detective uh, series because he had a very specific character in that show. I think, so what they're trying to do is they're saying, you know, and I'm not saying anything new here. They've been saying this for decades, but... But they're trying to sell to an identity, and they're also trying to give you an identity. They're saying, not only am I trying to appeal to people like this, but we're also saying, we could give you an identity if you buy this. And I'm pretty sure in Mad Men, that the TV series, it was all about this as well. And so, again, I'm not saying anything that is, hasn't been said before. But that has to do, my main point here is that has to do with adult identity and has nothing to do with teen identity. All those car commercials, for the most part, are are targeting adults. And so that shows us that identity development is not just something for teenagers. It's something that people do throughout their life. Now, on average, in all likelihood, teenagers are uh, doing the most rapid identity development. But for yourself, think about yourself. Think about who you were 20 years ago, if you're my age, 45. Think about yourself 20 years ago. Were you a different sort of person? My guess is you were. And so identity shifts over time. It just might be a little slower as as an adult. Think about the sort of music you listen to. For instance, there are some people that will say, "I, I hate country music. And there are some people that say, I love country music. Well, why is that? What is it about your identity that makes you like that? It's not likely because the music is empirically bad or good. It's because it links up with your identity somehow. And the music informs your identity as well. If you live in the middle of a city and you love country music, you might start finding yourself being attracted to certain countryish things, right? <laughs> and, the, and the reverse can be true. If If you're from the country and you like city music, whatever that is, then... You know, it, it might change your identity. If you're Swedish and you like American music or vice versa, it might change your identity. Anyway, also, uh, adults will manifest their identity through their political candidates that they love. And um, the, the in my view, and I'm sure I'll piss off lots of people, my view is that the, I, the candidate that we like is 95% identity and 5% practical issues. Because a, ask the average voter who has a you know, very firm opinion about who they're voting for in the presidential election or wherever, what country, whatever country they're living in. Ask, you know, may, say, do you, who do you like? And if they say, oh, I like this person. How much do you like this? Oh, this person's the best. Trump or Bernie or Hillary or Cruz or whoever this person is the best. How do you feel about the other? Oh, the other guys, they're idiots. They're blah, blah, blahs. Well, if you ask them, and again, this is the average person. I'm not necessarily talking about my intelligent, you know, patrons, but I'm talking about the average person. You ask them, well, so how did the, how does that person actually vote? And, and what, how will they likely vote in the future? And what will they actually do as a politician? Again, my guess is is the vast majority of people will look at you blankly and or be very wrong about what they're saying. But if you ask them questions, so so that, so they will have no idea practically what the political candidate is actually going to do or has actually done. But if you ask them to tell them to tell you the identity of that person, they will talk forever. Trump tells it like he is, and he doesn't take any crap, and he's going to shake things up. Bernie Sanders is, you say the same, he doesn't take any crap, and he's going to shake things up. And, you know, so, so people vote, especially for presidential uh, elections, and primaries for that matter, in my view, based on identity. How their personal identity matches the the, the identity they want to have for themselves, they find the candidate that seems to exhibit the identity that is most congruent with the identity that they want for themselves. So, if you're a if you're my guess is if you're a Bernie supporter, you like to think of yourself as a giving, nonviolent, loving. Non selfish person. (laughs) If you're if you're a Trump supporter, my guess is is you're not listening to this right now. (laughs) Just joking. If you're a Trump supporter, my guess is is you think of yourself as someone who doesn't like to take any shit and someone who likes to be blunt and someone who's tired of people who complain. If you're, uh, you know, I I don't know, Hillary and Cruz are probably harder for me to define, but you get the picture, right? It has more to do with how you see yourself than what the actual uh, politician is actually going to do once they're in office. Other things that adults do that manifest their identity are the brands of clothes they wear, or the tattoos they have, or the hairstyles, or the way they are on Facebook, just look at the way someone presents themselves on Facebook. That has everything to do with identity. And what people will say is, oh, yeah, you know, those narcissistic people on Facebook. Well, everyone everyone displays their identity in some way, whether that's on Facebook or some other way. So we don't need to necessarily make fun of just people on Facebook. Okay, so uh, again... We tend to only talk about identity development when it comes to teenagers, and that, of course, as I hope I've demonstrated, is silly, since we're always manifesting and developing identity. Also, identity development, in my experience, when it's written about and talked about, it's almost always pathologized by adults and many clinicians who are adults. But the idea of identity development is almost always talked about as if it's pathological for teenagers, it seems as if it's a way for adults to discount teens and their experiences, a form of adultism, as we call it. Like, oh, well, she's just finding her identity. You know, she shows up with weird hair or something. Well, it's just a... She's searching for herself, you know, in this condescending way. Um, And it's also often not taken very seriously. If a teenager says... I'm really into this right now, or I or they start to change how they approach things. Well, oh, it's just a phase that he's going through. He's just going through a phase. Now, you know, it might be a healthy way to look at it, but in my experience, again, on the ground level, when you're actually talking amongst adults about teenagers and their development, they typically will be, they'll typically ridicule kids. Oh, you know, kids today... With their weird haircuts and trying to find themselves all the time, <laughs> uh, and also the language sort of uh, betrays this this judgment that adults will have. They'll call it an identity crisis in the literature sometimes, or they'll call it the struggle for identity. You know, the struggle. Why? Why? Why does it have to be a struggle? Are you when when you're watching a a commercial about cars, and you're in the market to buy cars, and you're shopping for cars, would you like would you think of that as a a struggle for identity, you might consider it a struggle to buy a car, but but you're not going to say, Oh, I'm struggling with my identity. You know, you wouldn't say that you would, you wouldn't even necessarily acknowledge that it has anything to do with identity, you would say you're just going with the car that is the best choice. So we don't have to necessarily pathologize it in the language either. Sometimes it'll be referred to as hormonal changes or something. And identity development is often framed as a moral struggle between society and family. It's often framed as, oh, well, she's searching for her identity, but what she really needs to do is conform to our family. So it's just another thing to think about as a family, if, you're, if you work with families, is that it's often, as children develop, as teenagers develop their identity, it's often considered a threat to the family. And so that individual development and that differentiation can be framed negatively by families. It's natural to feel as if it's a threat, and I'll get into more of that later. All right, let's talk about a little research. You know, this is just a minor study about identity published by stageoflife.com. That's stageoflife.com. And they found that um, on their online survey, they found that 63% of respondents who, they were all teenagers, 63% of respondents indicated they know who they are, and 37% say they don't know who they are yet. So again, about two-thirds say, yeah, I know who I am. And another th- third says, actually, I don't. I don't know who I am yet. Okay, and when they asked the respondents, what helps you to find your identity? What, what sort of things or people or activities, what, what sort of things in, while you're a teenager help you to find your identity? Well, the number one response was activities and hobbies, which is interesting, right? That for teens today, they develop their identity, who they are as a human being, through their activities and hobbies, you know, which are usually sports or art or something. The, the second is parents and family, which I think is probably a positive thing. And number three was friends, which makes total sense. Interesting that most people identified parents and family above friends, though, right? And the, the much lesser factors that they identified as contributing to, to their identity were sexual orientation, boyfriends and girlfriends, their church, and their school. Another question here, 84% of the respondents indicated their identities are shaped more by nurture instead of nature. So the vast majority of respondents to this survey said, said that their, their identity was, was shaped by their environment, you know, nurture, and their families rather than by nature or biology, which I think is, you know, probably accurate. They also said that sixty six or the, they also found that sixty six percent of the respondents sixty about two thirds of the respondents indicated that they feel most people do not see them for who they are so about two thirds said you know what most people they don't really see me for who for who I really am which I think would be true for adults too and uh, by the way fifty one percent of the respondents indicated that they think older or other kids, that they think other kids who aren't their friends help shape their identity. So in other words, about half of the respondents said that, you know, acquaintance kids who don't, who aren't their friends, acquaintance kids help shape their identity, which I think is an astute thing to say. They also asked a qualitative question, the following question they asked, what's the biggest thing that affects your identity development? And there are lots of different qualitative responses, but some highlights. People said their religion, their marching band, <laughs> being introverted, being themselves, their family, their sexual orientation, their friends, a past relationship. One person said, my insomnia is the biggest thing that affects my identity. Another person said, I am a daughter of God. I'm, I'm a religious person. And one teen said that her entire idea is wrapped up in her desire to move to Germany. She was born in Germany and moved to the United States as a young child, and as a teenager, her she said her entire identity was wrapped up in her desire to move to Germany. And I remember kids like this, I remember people like this as as a teen. And to some extent, my I, I don't know why, but in the 80s, it was really trendy to like Australia for some reason. I don't know if it was like Crocodile Dundee or or the Mad Max movies or something, but there was this obsession with Sydney, Australia, and just Australia in general. And I remember I, telling people that, you know, I'm going to go to Australia one day, and I as soon as I graduated from high school, I never thought about Australia again and and still haven't. I mean, I'd love to go, but uh, it's in terms of like places that I want to go. It's not super high in my list. I'm sure it's a great place, but, but, um, but anyway, so I, I can identify with this person who identifies with the notion that all they want to do is go to Germany and it just shows you how, how teenagers struggle, <laughs> struggle, there I use the word struggle. Well, I'll use the word struggle, how they struggle to latch on to things, not in a negative way, like it's this negative thing, but how how few adults would say that, right? How, how few 40, 50-year-olds would say. My entire identity is wrapped up in uh, me taking a vacation in you know, Czechoslovakia or something. But you'll find teenagers that everything is focused on that, you know, they'll have they'll have posters and they'll read blogs and they they'll start learning the language and you know, it everything has to do with that one thing. And uh, I think that's just kind of particular to what it is to be a teenager. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. I'm just saying it's particular. In some ways it's it's a wonderful thing because it you know gives them direction and it and it it's it's a clarity of thought you know there are lots of adults who feel like they have no idea what they want, so i anytime someone wants something that's functional, I think is a good thing okay now let's talk about the challenges to teen identity development. so I talked a little bit about the research. I talked a little bit about what is the self and how is the self defined. Now, let's talk about challenges to the identity development process. Well, there are normal barriers to identity development, and at the same time, identity development helps alleviate those barriers. So I'll get into that in a second. But anyway, so the transition from childhood to post-puberty has a lot of changes for people. For most people in the Western world, from they go from a childlike life to a life in between childhood and and adulthood, so when you're eight, nine, ten years old, your life is very much of a child you're very you're treated like a child you don't ha- you don't have responsibilities people aren't necessarily talking to you about college or responsibility or this sort of thing or you know you're you're not necessar- you're probably not thinking about sex or romance. But then you become 13, 14, 15, 16, and suddenly there's all these other things that you're dealing with. You're dealing with sex. You're dealing with the future. You're dealing with what sort of job you're going to have. You're dealing with grades. You're dealing with uh, interacting with adults uh, in a way that it was very different than when you were 10. And so it, it involves quite a bit of change. Now, for people in other societies, it has nothing of the sort you know in other societies you're you're kind of like a teenager when you're 10 11 12 and when you're 14 you're basically an adult and so and different times in history that was true too but in the western world uh, people are afforded a lengthy adolescence that goes well into people's 20s really um, there's also changes in the brain that occur that are pretty significant during adolescence and bodily changes, obviously. And this is something that, you know, often gets discussed, right? You know, puberty, you, you get hair down there and up in there and hair in places that are strange and you start to get sexual urges and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that's all true. Uh, okay. Okay. So another, uh, and that's not so much of a barrier to teen identity or a challenge to, but it's, you know, it, it does present challenges. Okay, another challenge to teen identity development is that teens are prone to black and white thinking. When we're born, we are the most black and white thinkers of all time, and as we mature and differentiate, we become more gr- of gray thinkers. And during childhood, we're, we're very black and white. And as teens, we're slightly less black and white, but still still fairly black and white. And this makes it difficult for teenagers to integrate several aspects of the self into a cohesive whole. So if, if one part of the self contra- seems to contradict another part of the self, there might be an issue there for the person. They might have trouble bringing those two parts of the self together into a cohesive self identity. They uh, teenagers might have difficulty. Um, they, they might only conceive of a limited number, maybe just one attribute of the self at a time while ignoring all others. So they, for instance, might see themselves Solely as I'm the gal who wants to move to Germany, for instance, without thinking about other parts of their identity. Like, I'm also someone who's very dedicated to my family, and I'm also someone who's very interested in art, and I'm also someone interested in one day having a family myself. And I'm also, you know, it might be hard for teenagers to conceive of all of those identities at once as being possessed within one person themselves. As another example they might say I I don't like authority and I really like my friends therefore this person might not be able to be friendly to some authority figures and they might and and not being able to be friendly towards family. So this is a common issue right and it's identity related. So for some for some teenagers they've decided I don't like authority. I'm I'm a rebel. And you know what? I also, I really like my friends and there might be another part of them that also really loves their family, but they can't reconcile that because they hate authority. They say to themselves, I hate authority. And there's another part of them that's saying, I love my family. But one of those has got to go if you're a black and white thinker. So you might say, well, obviously I hate my family because I, I hate authority and there are authority elements in my family. So I hate my family. And today I'm a rebel, and that's it, and I reject my family. And so you'll see manifestations of this in teenagers. And to some extent, it's all normal, right? And we can help kids with this and families, but I'll get more into that later. Another thing that people might, uh, another common sort of uh, complex for some people is they're getting bad grades, and they're, sometimes people treat them like an airhead, you know? And then they conclude that they're a stupid person that they're incapable when they actually are aren't stupid at all they're smart and they're good at a lot of things, but they're they're just not getting good grades in math, and that doesn't define the human being. you know you'll see adults do this all the time they'll see, you know if if you give if you give me for instance, you know, I consider myself a smart person, that's part of my self identity. It's like, oh, I'm smart, I can figure stuff out." And I, I take pride in being able to contemplate things. That, that's me. Well, if you gave me a math test, I used to be quite good at math, but I'm positive I've forgotten 95% of it. So if you gave me a, a ninth grade math, math test, my guess is, is I would fail it terribly. But it, that wouldn't destroy me because I would. I, I have all these other examples of myself that are congruent with how I see myself that uphold my sense of being... Basically, a smart person. So my ability to see the gray in there that uh, I see myself as a smart contemplative person. And at the same time, I, there are things that I know nothing about. <laughs> there, I mean, there, most things I know nothing about. Most subjects in school, if you were to give me the test, I would fail it. So how does that jive with me being a smart person? Well, it's because I see the gray there that I'm smart with some things and maybe have a general ability to think critically, but there are the vast majority of topics I actually know almost nothing about. So it's just another example of one of the challenges for teenagers in, de- in developing a sense of self and a sense of identity is this black and white thinking that they have and the inability to to integrate several different parts of the self that to some extent conflict with each other. Okay, another challenge to developing identity is the lack of emotional awareness. As we mature and differentiate, we tend to gain more emotional awareness. And it you know it depends on the parenting you get and the sort of experiences you have growing up and how much parents help with this. But, but for the most part, teenagers have a long way to go regarding emotional awareness. Uh, one thing working with teenagers that I often hear is, it didn't bother me. I, You know, it didn't hurt my feelings. I don't know what you're talking about. When it's obvious to me as their therapist that their feelings were hurt. And... It's because not only are they not aware of their emotions, but they also don't want to admit vulnerability because they have low self-esteem compared to what sort of self-esteem they have later on in life. Okay, another complication to developing an identity is lack of differentiation. They are, because of their age and potentially because of past issues in their family, they are particularly dependent on others to define them. They can't think for themselves the way a healthy adult can. They're not independent. They have difficulty acting on their own. And because they're so vulnerable to the opinions of other people, they try to defend themselves in various ways, like saying, I don't care, or by being angry a lot, or by rebelling, or rejecting others, or isolating themselves, or over identifying with an idol or a friend or using substances or develop, or developing an eating disorder or getting involved with a gang or it's you know it goes on and on when teenagers are vulnerable and are uh, you know lacking self-esteem they will ha- they have a number of things available to them to protect themselves and one of them is to overcompensate by acting like they don't care and rebelling against everything Okay, if you know me, you know I'm going to talk about society and culture at some point, and here we go. A, another major challenge to the development of identity for teenagers is our culture. We we tend to treat teenagers like little adults rather than big children in our culture. I, I find that, uh, and this isn't common to every family, but I find that I, I find myself telling families and parents... Look, your kid is a child. Stop treating your 14-year-old child like he or she is an adult because they're not. They're, they're still very much a kid. It wasn't that long ago that they, were, that they were very young children. And so expect them to have some deficits in their ability to manage their emotions, to manage conflict. You know, don't, don't expect them to be very good at things yet. It's not. It's not rational to do that. So uh, that's a. That's a. And that's a barrier to treatment. Uh, that's a barrier to. Well, it's a barrier to treatment to some extent, but it's a barrier to the development of identity because it tells. It doesn't give kids a chance to develop a, an identity, and they grow up feeling criticized, and it's harder for them. Another barrier in our culture is that we emphasize grades way too much rather than emotional intelligence and self-development and moral development. And if you've heard this podcast, you've heard me rant and rave about that before, so I won't go into that. But we overemphasize grades way too much. We also, as a culture, not necessarily as if you as a parent, but as a culture in general, we don't guide teenagers enough. I think that we tend to reject teenagers too much. We just ah teenagers they annoy me just and we just push them aside rather than bringing them in and helping to guide them and ha- having them uh, be a men- ha- being a mentor for a teenager and there are programs that try to facilitate this but it can go a long way and kids teenagers are really need it but the problem I see is that when adults approach teenagers to guide them teenagers naturally because they're massively insecure won't react very well to the guidance at first but if you persevere they react really quite well because the, if anyone on the planet needs guidance it's a teenager and so and they know that because they feel very uneasy about what's going on in the world and themselves and so they would love be because they're so desperate for mentorship and guidance and because they're they lack self-esteem, they become the most adamant haters, outward haters of guidance and mentorship. (laughs) But deep down, that's what they really want. We also expose them to too many people. Again, if you've heard this podcast before, you've heard me talk about how a lot of our ills individually come from the fact that our society is too big for us. Back in the day, we only had to worry about 100, 200 people who were in our tribe and knew us since we were born. So we were in a very small band of people, and we adapted under those circumstances. I can't prove that, but it's you know worthy speculation. And so when today we're exposed, particularly teenagers, to hundreds, thousands of people every day, It makes them really quite nervous, and it makes it hard for them to develop identity because they have to perhaps be very flashy with their identity. If you grew up in a small tribe of 100 people, you wouldn't have to define your identity all the time because everyone would know who you were. And if you suddenly showed up in a wacky outfit in your small tribe, everyone would say, oh, come on, Johnny, everyone knows it's still you. But because we expose teenagers to so many people, they have to, they come into contact with so many strangers on a daily basis. They have to, they feel the need to establish their identity up front, which it can only be done visually or through other kinds of temporary, shall we say, surface means, rather than developing identity in terms of character, so... I won't go on too long about that, but I I think you understand what I'm saying. Also, teenagers don't get enough physical affection. And so that can complicate the uh, development of identity because they might turn to things that are in its sense, trying to compensate for that lack of physical affection. Like they might become quite sexually promiscuous and there's nothing wrong with having sex a lot, but but they might turn to that dysfunctionally as a way of trying to make up for the fact that no one ever cuddles with them anymore. Because in some families, they tend to treat teenagers with with a 10-foot pole and they, they, they treat 5-year-olds with a lot of affection. And suddenly when they're you know a teenager, there's no more affection. This is particularly a problem with dads and daughters because of the fear of being accused of sexual abuse or something, there is uh, even less affection between fathers and their daughters. This is, this is not all families, but, and I'm not talking, you have to be, you know, rolling around in your pajamas for affection, but you know, it could be a hand on the shoulder or a side hug that lasts two minutes or something, you know, affection can take so many different forms. And so, we don't do that enough with teenagers, and so that becomes a problem. Also, we socialize our children into binaries of a, of a very particular kind of personality of mass, what we call masculinity and femininity. Boys are forced to be tough, you know. They're for you know, don't be a sissy because no one's going to like you. Girls are forced to be subservient. Don't be a bitch because no one's going to like you. And a Thousand other thousands of other messages that pigeonhole people. And so rather than letting people develop their identity naturally and spontaneously and with flexibility and with freedom, they're forced to adapt or to adopt particular elements of identity that don't necessarily fit for them. So it's another massive complication that I could go on and on about, but I won't. We also just don't generally guide kids around romance and sex enough. You know, Right at the time when they're suddenly introduced to romance and sex, we don't guide them enough. I am a part of sex ed at a high school, and I can tell you from experience that kids are not being guided by their parents. I mean, many parents are doing a good job, and many schools are doing a great job. And there are good things on the internet, but there are a lot of terrible things on the internet. There's probably more terrible things on the internet. And a lot of parents just avoid the topic altogether, and a lot of schools avoid the topic for the most part too. One of the ways that I teach uh, sex ed to teenagers is I will have the older teenagers teach sex ed to the younger teenagers. And a lot of people would gasp at that, right? But actually it makes total sense because the younger teenagers are much more likely to listen to the older teenagers than they are to listen to me. I've learned that time and time again. So, you know, 17, 18 year olds will listen to me because they've, they've graduated from that rebellion phase and the 13, 14 year olds will listen to the 18 year olds, but they won't listen to me. So why not just have the 18 year olds teach the 14 year olds anyway? And it, it works out really well, but, it's a public school, and so it's it's um, it, it it's under their purview of the principal and the teachers and the parents and all this sort of stuff. And so, um, so sometimes we don't get to do what we really want to do. And when I put it to the eight, to the seventeen, eighteen year olds, I say, you know, what what would you have liked to have heard when you were thirteen or fourteen? And a lot of the time, and I do, I've done this for years. And what a lot of times, what the seventeen, eighteen year olds will say is they will say. I would have liked it if someone could have helped me understand how to make decisions around sex. You know, I don't necessarily need to know about where the vas deferens is. I mean, that's, that's sort of useful. And I certainly don't need to learn the 20 different names of STIs. And I certainly don't need to learn... Uh, a ton about HIV. I mean, teach me a little bit. But really what I think about on a on a weekly if not daily basis is how do I make decisions about when to have sex and how to have sex and what does sex mean to me in my life? And and you know, we all know as adults that sex means lots of different things. For some people it, it's it's just a mechanical thing that they do for shits and giggles and for other people It's a religious experience, and for other people, it's for procreation, and for other people, it's all of the things. For other people, it's for bonding and and attaching to someone and being romantic, and for other people, it's for fun. and, And again, for some people, it's all those things, but for teenagers, they have no idea. They have no idea. And so they're completely left on their own. And frankly, the Internet, which only shows a very, very narrow band of what sex is in general. And so the 17-year-olds say, well, what I would like to do is talk with the 13, 14-year-olds about how to make decisions around sex. And some people would say, oh boy, if you give the 17, 18-year-olds the, the, the keys to the car, they're going to drive that car off a cliff. And they're going to teach those young kids all sorts of terrible things. Well, It it couldn't be farther from the truth because when you give 17 to 18-year-olds, 18-year-olds the keys, they tend to become much more conservative than, than adults are. Over the years, as I said, I've been doing this, and there was only one or two years where we managed to get that part of the curriculum in, which was how to make decisions around sex. Because all the other years, the parents and the vice principal and the principal and the blah, blah, blah people would shut it down. And I would ask them, "Why are you shutting it down? Well, what is what is was is it about this that you don't like?" And they never have a good reason. the The reasons that they have are are very obscure. You know, they'll say things like, "Well, it's just not in the standard curriculum," or something. Or, but but what they really are worried about is that they're going to get in trouble. They worry that some parent is going to sue the school and blah blah blah. And in general, I find even, for the most part, teachers and and for a lot of parents, they're just uncomfortable with the idea of teenagers having sex at all. Which is so strange because if you asked the teachers and the parents, what's the chance, you know, how many teenagers have sex? What's the percentage of teenagers that have sex? They'd say, oh, I don't know, probably 90, 95% of the kids have sex at some point. You know, or at least you know, for the conservative people, and they might say 60%. Well, okay, so should we be talking with them about it? Shouldn't they be getting some guidance around this very important decision? And they'll say, well, but we can't do that. And so when we don't do that, we have all sorts of bad things that happen to kids that we can document all the time. When you ignore uh, a, a human Experience and something that is in need of guidance, then that doesn't make it go away. It just makes people act in ignorance and without guidance. And uh, it just frustrates me because it's hard for me to get through But anyway, the, the couple years where I have managed to get this through and provided this guidance, it would always go wonderfully for the kids and the older kids, the 17, 18 year olds were always extremely conservative. I mean, in my mind they were more conservative than they needed to be, but when you give 17 year, 18 year olds a chance to be responsible, in in my experience they tend to be overly responsible. I think they're trying to to be good or something as as you know, they feel overly uh concerned with safety and this kind of stuff. And so uh, if anything, I'm telling the 17, and 18 year olds, oh, lighten up a little bit. <laughs> like, don't, don't, don't be so conservative with them. Okay. Also, regarding culture, as I said earlier, to some extent, the experience of adolescence is completely dependent on privilege. So this is another complication to the development of identity in teenagers. For privileged youth. They will tend to, during the teenage years, really be focused on prepping for college or having fun or building a long-term future and career in something, getting connected to people, dating various partners. Often there are just one or two children in the families, so they get complete attention from their parents and their extended family. So for privileged youth, this is a, a common scenario for underprivileged youth for you know black kids immigrant kids teenage years are uh, not all black kids and not all immigrant kids obviously but you know for 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 poor families they teenagers have to start contributing to the finances of the family or they've got to get out they as teenagers in, the, in these families, they might actually start raising their own children, or, or they might be raising their younger siblings. This happens a lot in single parents that are stressed out. Uh, the older kids have to take care of the younger kids. The teenagers in families like this might be dealing with legal problems in the family. They might have to take care of older family members. And there's a higher rate of death of their friends or family members. So these kids have to grow up much faster. So so their ability to... they, They don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time developing their identity the way that privileged youth do. Privileged youth can develop their adolescent identity well into their 20s, whereas underprivileged youth don't have any time to develop their identity. Also for LGBTQ youth, these are people, depending on their community, can't manifest a main feature of their identity. And, you know, they're being oppressed, they're being bullied, and they have low self-esteem, and they might be suicidal. And so their identity as a teen is completely wrapped up in that oppressive experience. For immigrant families, uh, the teenagers might be able to speak English and the parents' language, and the parents might not be able to speak the might not be able to speak English very well so as a child from an immigrant family a teenager they their experience of their identity development within their family system is is really quite different than for other groups and so there are other groups I could talk about, but each group under priv- privileged group has its own individual specific challenges uh, in comparison to privileged youth okay. So the last challenge to teens developing their identity that I want to talk about is homeostasis. The the emailer, patron Natasha identified homeostasis because she's a smart marriage and family therapist who thinks systemically, which I really enjoy. But if you're not familiar, homeostasis basically in the systemic theory, it refers to the, the nature of systems. So I could go on and on because it's, complicated philosophical and scientific process but basically the metaphor goes that for families systems for family systems they resist change because they they are they prefer their routines that they have established as at least somewhat functional in in previous times so when a teen becomes a teenager when a child becomes a teenager they change who they... They're starting to change who they are. They change their needs. They change the way they behave. They change the way they react. A 10-year-old in many families is very nice and compliant, and a 14-year-old is universally, <laughs> in many families, the opposite of compliant. And so as these people, and you know, graduate from childhood to adolescence, the system has to change accordingly. But systems resist change in general, particularly systems that are struggling with dysfunction, they will be particularly resistant to change. So this is another barrier to the development of identity, even for healthy families, they'll resist that change. And the system will want to push that teenager back in time to an earlier role that they had in the family. And so this 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 makes it difficult. Okay, what can we say about the ways that kids find identity? So I'm done talking about the challenges to teens developing identity. but how, how do we how do kids find their identity? I've talked about some of them already, but I'll just briefly go over them. And again, we tend to pathologize these things, and so try not to pathologize them for yourself. Um, each one of these factors can help or hinder someone's life or their identity development, depending on the situation. But anyway, an easy thing to identify is fashion. The way that teens dress and the way that they portray themselves visually, their hair, this kind of thing, jewelry. Again, this often is pathologized, but it is a a very easy way for people to express who they are. Even if they're dressing very normally in like jeans and a t-shirt, that's saying something about who they are. And they know that in all likelihood. So that's one way that people express or find, quote-unquote, their identity. Also, rebellion, rebellion against authority. The reason why teenagers are prone to rebellion has to do with identity development. When you are 10, in general, you don't care about who you are in comparison to other people. You're fine being defined as one of the people in your family. And you're fine with your parents defining who you are for the most part. When you're a teenager, you, you start really wanting to find out who you are. And you want to say, okay, I am this. Well, if you're having trouble finding out who you are, then and most teenagers do, then a very easy way to identify who you are is to, is to say who you are not. And a very easy person to target with that is your parents because previously you were so much, your identity was so much wrapped up in your parents. And so it's, it's common to have an impulse to say, I am not my parents. I am nothing like my dad. I'm nothing like my mom. I'm nothing like my brother. I'm nothing like my sister. I am, I am so far different than them. And that's fine. It's, it's a normal phase to go through. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's an easy way to identify you as a person. Two, three, four-year-olds will do the same thing, but not around identity, but around um, ass- asserting their their needs and their wants. A three-year-old will say, no, I don't want that, even though you know that they want it. <laughs> you know, Mom and dad comes to a three-year-old and says, would you like chocolate ice cream and you'll say, no, I don't want it. Well, it's a very easy way to assert yourself is to, is to say no, you know, and a very easy way to find identity is to say, I am, I am completely the opposite of my family. And this is neither a hinder or a help. It just depends on the situation. It can be a very it, for some kids, you want to help them do that. You want to help them differentiate themselves from their parents. Also, another way that teenagers will, in America anyway, will, will commonly find their identity is to worship an idol, worship a celebrity, an artist, a comedian, a musician, a politician, etc. Basically, the teenager is trying to internalize this idol as a way of gaining their self esteem, their. Uh, prestige, this sort of thing, and again, this is often pathologized. You'll see a kid who is super into, you know, such and such, and adults will will say, "Oh, you know, teenagers—they're blah blah blah." Rather than encouraging it, say, "Oh, good for you. What do you like about that?" That's, as a therapist, you'll ask, you could ask that, "What do you like about that?" You know, they really identify with Tupac, for instance. Oh, what do you re- what do you like about Tupac? You know, what do you identify with? Help them explore it. Don't pathologize it. Because there are things about about Tupac that are that are quite positive that you could you could make to be quite positive. Don't be afraid of that. For me, when I was a kid, it was the Beatles. I had Beatles posters and records and postcards and knickknacks plastered all over every wall in my bedroom. I just loved the Beatles and worshipped them, and that was a big part of my life. Birdo's too, right? Okay. Also, another main way that people assert their and develop their identity is through clicks, through friends and groups of friends clicks. Teenagers will find and form cliques of friends. They become the same as their the people or you know, they, they share some sameness with their click and they exclude other people. And they develop their own language and rituals and this is often a, this is often pathologized by families and teachers why are you excluding everyone why why are you so you know you're becoming too close to those people or you know this kind of stuff and again it could be a hindrance it might be a problem but it often is not it's often actually a very good thing because they're learning how to be a good friend and they're learning how to build something with with other people and they're forming their identity now, for some kids they 're so desperate for identity because they feel so lost, maybe they moved from another community and they 're new to the school well a, a very easy way to form a clique when when you don 't have one is around substance abuse you know if you 're the kid who smokes if you're the if you 're one of the kids who smokes pot back behind you know the portables or back outside of campus or whatever. You instantly have a click because you have something that you can bond over and you need each other. And so for a lot of troubled kids, that's how they will find their group. And what you'll find is the, the click of pot smokers, none of them are absolutely desperate to smoke pot. But without pot, they don't have a bond anymore because their bond is so tenuous to begin with. And so none of them want to give up the pot because that's, a, that's akin to giving up their click which is giving up their identity. A lot of kids that I I have treated their entire identity is wrapped up in their marijuana use. And so I will talk a, for a long time because they will say to me you know after many many sessions they'll say, "Yeah, maybe my pot use is getting a little out of control. Maybe I'm getting too wrapped up in that world." I would never tell a teenager that by the way because I'm not their dad. But you know, through exploration and through non-judgment for me, they will often come to that conclusion, at least slightly. And so we'll say, okay, well, how can you get out of it? And they're like, well, it's impossible because everyone in my high school sees me as the stoner. And I sell pot to everyone. If I didn't smoke pot, people wouldn't, I don't think they'd even like me anymore because that's what they know me. They, everyone sees me as essentially the Snoop dog of this high school. And so if I didn't have that, then what am I? And so that, that's a conversation you can have with the kids. So therapy, this is the final phase of the podcast here. What can you do to help people? Okay, the first thing you can do, as I've been saying, is you can help teenagers to integrate their different attributes. You know, they might say, I'm not so good at math, but I'm good in Spanish class and I'm good in history class. So I can say that I'm mostly smart, but I'm not so good at math. So you're helping them to form these autobiographical narratives that are helpful, and it's impossible to know what sort of narrative you want to help them with, but you can sense it usually. But try not to be too overbearing. A lot of therapists will be too, and parents for that matter, will be too overbearing with their uh, helping of kids. And kids will shy away from it they they won't like the conversation and they or they'll appease you and let it happen. for instance, if someone came in and you know and, and you were saying, you know like they're really into Tupac, and you're like, "Oh, what do you like about Tupac?" and they say, "Oh, you know, I just really love his attitude, and i really you know I just love his music and i I love the way that he talks and and you might hate Tupac, so you might be saying stuff like, "Well, don't you think Tupac disrespects women and it isn't that a bad thing. As soon as you start imposing those kinds of statements on their identity development, again, they'll either appease you and say, Oh yeah, you're right. I don't like Tupac anymore. And they're just saying that to shut you up because they know how to do that to adults. Or they'll they'll just reject you and they'll just be like, Uh-huh, yeah. And then you don't and then they don't want to talk with you anymore. So you, you have to be in their world and in their language to affect any kind of change. But really what you want to do is just to help them explore for themselves. Um, They might eventually say, yeah, but some of his lyrics, he can be kind of harsh towards women and girls, and I don't think that's very good. Oh you don't well okay that's that's nice of you that that must mean that you're a very nice respectful person i really like that about you so you're being positive about things that you're observing in their identity and you you're trying to you're you're with them along the journey of exploration you're not telling them what their identity should be cuz believe me you can never tell a teenager what their identity is or should be cuz they they just won't listen to you as as they shouldn't they should never listen to anyone on that they need to explore that for themselves that's the whole point of differentiation of Bowen's differentiation they have to differentiate not just listen to other people about who they are okay another thing is, is as a therapist you you want to reflect what you see you want to counter their low self-esteem so many teenagers have unrealistic points of view regarding themselves and they need someone to counterbalance that with something now again, you don't want to be heavy handed with that and say like um and just you know essentially tell them to erase their low self esteem and just say, "Well like adopt my view of you but but often in therapy it's it's useful to help kids with their perspective on how they see themselves and what sort of autobiographical stories they're telling themselves if they made a mistake at with you know they They lost their temper and they pushed someone. Well, it's destructive for them to be ashamed of that and to think of themselves as a bully or to think of themselves as an evil person, which happens. Whereas it's more useful for them to see themselves as a good person who made a mistake or as a good person who was triggered, their trauma was triggered and they reacted and they lost control of themselves. That's different. It's a different narrative than I'm evil. And again, it gets complicated because again, we don't want to impose our narratives on our on our clients, but but it is um, something to keep in mind as you are exploring things with people. Um, also, as I've been saying, you want to facilitate self-exploration and self-reflection. You want to help them build that identity. You want to facilitate conversations. And if you're working with families, you want to facilitate those conversations within the family. Let's all talk about Johnny or Jane. Let's all talk about who he or she is. What, who, how do you see this person? What are the qualities you see in this person? This, this can really help identity development in families. Also, you want to help families understand how their culture affects the teenager's self-concept and self-identity. Our culture, unfortunately, harms everybody, even white males, and so discussions regarding culture are important when it comes to helping families with teenagers that are developing an identity. With a, with a black teenager, okay, you're a black kid. What is it like to, you know, who are you? And how do people see you? And how do you see yourself as a, as a young black person in our society today? Maybe they don't really identify with, being black that much. That's another thing that annoys me is as a person of color myself, whenever people will really overemphasize someone's uh, ethnicity or the color of their skin regarding their identity, it it bothers me. It it can be done by white people sometimes because they're, they're trying to honor someone's ethnicity, but in the process, they're basically telling them that they're not good enough because they're not emphasizing their ethnicity enough. I, I hope I'm making sense here, but anyway. So again, you want to live in the client's world, and you want to see the world from their perspective, and not imply that they're not exploring something enough, and that sort of thing. Um, but also, you want to you want to help them understand how culture is limiting them, and how the binary of masculinity and femininity is is pigeonholing them or the uh, a- attributes that are being applied to them by society based on the color of their skin, how that affects their identity. And you want to help them to shed or reject those identities that are associated with their, with their ethnicity or their gender or whatever that they don't want to have, you know. Uh, well, you know, society sees you as a criminal. How, how do you feel about that? Oh, that's, I think that's stupid. Oh, okay, so who are you then? Well, I'm this. Oh, okay. So it's it's a lot of talk around stuff like that. You want to help the parents adjust. I've talked about that already. You want to help the parents adjust to the child's development. You want to reframe things for them. You want to help them with the feelings of rejection that they're that they're getting from their teenager. When teenager when children transition from childhood to teenager land, they they often will start rejecting their parents they'll say you know get out of my life and i hate you and and for parents this can be just the worst experience of their life because as a parent you sacrifice everything for your child everything you 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 give everything over to your children and then one day they turn to you and say they hate you and they don't want to talk to you and they 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 wish that you weren't even in their life that can be extremely hurtful for parents. And so we want to as therapists, as family therapists, we want to help parents adjust to that. That's a that's a reality and we want to acknowledge that. We want to help them essentially grieve because they have lost their child and gained a teenager, but they've lost their innocent little loving child and they've gained a teenager and one day they'll lose their teenager and they'll gain an adult in their family. And so it's a grieving process that has to occur that needs to be honored. You want to help parents with their fears regarding the safety of the world. Parents are terrified of what's going to happen to their child, and as their child gains more freedom and demands more freedom, we have to help parents uh, live with the fear of what's going to happen to their child. Because for many parents, that fear is so overwhelming that they will do everything they can to maintain the homeostasis. Because when a child is 10, they're much they're much less likely to want to go out on a Friday night, and so there's, there's, there's less of a threat. When a 14-year-old starts saying, I want to go to a party or I want to do this and that without you, as parents around, parents naturally get very afraid, and some parents become pathologically afraid to the point where they don't allow their child to develop an identity. Also, you want to help parents with their catastrophizing regarding their future the teenagers future. When Johnny gets uh, an F in math, that doesn't mean he's going to be a, a homeless person on the street. It just means he got an F in a, in a stupid math class and nothing more than that. It means he'll have to take a little bit of extra community college after he graduates or you know there's there's so much catastrophizing that goes on for parents these days, particularly and you want to help parents to to realize that it's not likely to happen. I have the luxury of being a family therapist for 20 years and having seen so many so many rebellious concerning teenagers grow up to be totally fine normal adults. That I can tell parents that. I can tell I can tell you countless examples of kids that were that were quote unquote just as bad as your kid or even worse that by the time they were even just 17 or 18, they were completely fine. And the parents wondered why they were so worried when their kid was 14. Um, I, I've seen that happen so many times. A 14-year-old just acting like a like hell on earth. <laughs> and then they turn 17, 18, and they're the sweetest, nicest, res- most responsible kids on the planet. And it, it it's just one of those things. And so sometimes you want to help parents with their anxiety regarding that so that they're not so rigid or so punitive or so anxious as parents. You know, you want to help them with that. Also, you want to help parents get support for themselves. A lot of parents, particularly single parents are suffering in isolation. They work all day, they come home, they make food, they don't have time to socialize. And therefore in isolation, a lot of weird notions can start going around in a lot of parents' head. And so As a therapist, you can not only alleviate a lot of that weirdness in their head, but you can also hook them up with other parents so that they can uh, feel less crazy, essentially. Also, you can help resolve past issues regarding the family life cycle that may become uh, inflamed or exacerbated during the adolescent challenging time. So in other words, as an example, if parents came together and never fully bonded as a couple when they first came together prior to having children, if they never developed the necessary bond as a couple, then when uh, they have children, they might turn to their kids as a way of distracting themselves from the fact that they don't really feel very close. But when the kid becomes a teenager, this will throw the whole family system off balance, and it might exploit that deficit in the marriage and therefore, as a therapist, you might detect that and have to focus on that bond. So as an example, a very common example in my uh, life as a therapist and as a supervisor, you have a family that brings in their teenager that is being defiant, breaking rules, smoking pot, running away. And you assess and you say, hmm, the parents are uh, not bonded very closely. And I'm, and I'm getting... Uh, statements from them saying that they they had a rushed marriage and they had kids too early and they, were, they had some medical issues or they had some financial issues in the beginning. And they come from families that are sort of distant. And so uh, it seems to me that maybe the parents need to come in for couples counseling. And once their relationship becomes stronger, then they can better face the challenges of raising a teenager. But until those parents bond and establish that attachment and that bond, there's very little that we can do regarding this system, because without that, there's going to be a lot of anxiety, and there's going to be a lot of anger, and a lot of conflict, and a lot of triangulation, and so we're going to focus on that. Also, uh, another thing you can do is to assist with healthy morphogenesis. So if you're a systems thinker, you, you understand homeostasis and morphogenesis, and so you want to you assist families in, in changing. And the metaphor I like to use regarding homeostasis and morphogenesis is you want families to have a homeostasis because stability and routines and uh, doing things that are expected are actually a good thing. for The status quo is actually a good thing in a, in a lot of ways. And I know the status quo and homeostasis are sometimes associated with negativity. But imagine if every day you woke up in a different family. It would be distressing. You wouldn't know what to do. So there needs to be – people need to have certain roles. They need to have certain routines. But what you want to do if there are dysfunctional routines, dysfunctional roles, then you want to help them to break the family from homeostasis – which can, which can require a lot of different kinds of uh, techniques, strategic family therapy, structural family therapy, is particularly good at this. Essentially, you have to mess with the family system and, and you, have to, you have to get them out of their rut. And, and uh, sometimes you do this through some temporary measure, like just doing something very wacky with them. Like just as an example, you give the teenager the right to tell the parents what to do just for a half an hour. You say, parents, we're going to do an exercise. Okay, Johnny, little Johnny, you're going to tell your parents, you're going to treat your parents the way they treat you for a half an hour. You're just, okay, I'm going to ask you all the, you know, da, da, da. I don't know, it's just a random dumb example. But essentially, you have to, you have to break the homeostasis. Okay, once the homeostasis is, is broken, then you have to start helping them to develop a new routine. You have to start introducing new routines and helping them shed old, old communication patterns. Then, once you establish some growth, some new potential, some healthy zone, then you want to establish a new homeostasis. You want them to lock that in because, again, systems do well under stability and under predictability. And so... Uh, that's what you want to do for families. So again, let's go back to patron Natasha's email here and see if I've answered it. So she was saying, I would love if you could do an episode on the topic of identity development in adolescence. Okay, check. I think I did that. Um, I think identity development is a major issue for these clients. I think it's because they are still living at home and engaged in the task of forging their identities on a daily basis. And this developmental task can often result in conflict with parents, guardians, authority, authority figures, and institutions. It disrupts homeostasis, and you get pushback from parents, right? So, and then this gets labeled as problematic behavior, right? So, I think I answered that in that if if it's your evaluation that the parents are mislabeling a, a normal teenager's de- developmental identity process as problematic behavior, then, uh, you know, a lot of the interventions have to do with the parents. And I find myself saying this a lot in that it, it, the, I find myself saying the following a lot to my family therapists who are trainees is that you, you can spend an hour a week trying to therapize a teenager, or you can change the parent's and the parents are around 24-7 with the kid. So if the parents change, there's a much more profound effect on the teenager than you could ever have on them. So uh, often intervening with the whole family is the necessary thing. So in the ways that I was saying, you know, if, if, if the parents are pushing back on a, on a healthy teenager's development of their identity, you want to help them understand what that means, and you want to belay their fears, and you want to understand where they're coming from. They, you, you want to help them understand why they're, why they're pushing back. They're likely terrified of, of what's going to happen to their kid. They, they've heard too many horror stories of kids getting hurt, and they need help with that anxiety. The parents might need help with just understanding what normal teen behavior is and normal teen development is and they they might need help from you in terms of reframing and understanding what's happening with their teenager. But that takes time. And what what I find is that novice therapists will often just get into arguing matches with with parents or they'll just kind of silently judge the parents while not really having that conversation. You ha- you have to act with authority with parents and you have to say, "Look, we're going to talk about this and I'm going to give my opinion and here here's where I think you're going right? And here's where I think you're going wrong. And, the, and you, you know, you want to have those, those challenging, difficult conversations with parents. You have to get into it with them. But you have to build the rapport first because if you're going to challenge them, they're going to they have to like you first. So you have to spend the time really proving that you're on their side and that you're with them, and then you can start challenging them. All right, patron Natasha, let me, go if that, let me know if that helps. Let me know if that helps. Thanks, everyone, for becoming a patron. If you haven't already, go to iTunes and review us. I recently read some iTunes reviews, and um, they're great to get. And uh, if we get more iTunes reviews, it moves us up in iTunes, I think. I think it's largely dependent on how many reviews we have. So if you could just go to iTunes and review us, that'd be super cool of you. I think you can even do it from your phone, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) All right, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. And please take care of yourself and take care of others because you and them deserve it.